0: Hello, it's the Leap of Faith, and you're very welcome. This morning, we woke to the news of tragedy in Israel, where at least 45 people were crushed to death and more than 150 people were injured. A stampede occurred after midnight last night, as tens of thousands of Jews gathered for the annual Lagba Omer celebrations in Mount Meron. It was one of the first mass gatherings since Covid restrictions were eased in the country. We'll hear shortly from journalist Paul Alster in Israel and the Deputy Ambassador to Ireland from Israel, Mrs Orly Weitzman. Later too, as the Covid vaccination programme continues to be rolled out in this country, around the world there are concerns among religious leaders about growing vaccine nationalism that's excluding poorer countries. Earlier this week, we learnt of the death of Rory Young, a Zambian-born Irish citizen killed on an anti-poaching patrol in the West African country of Burkina Faso, along with two Spanish journalists. Joining me this evening will be His Excellency Archbishop Michael Crotty, Apostolic Nuncio to Burkina Faso and Niger. But first, we go to Israel and to the tragic events of last night, resulting in the deaths of 45 people and many more injured, following a stampede at Mount Meron. Earlier today, before the Sabbath began, I spoke with Paul Alster, who is a broadcast journalist in Israel. I asked him firstly for an update on the latest situation.
1: Well it's a very difficult situation here in Israel. this has officially been regarded as the worst civilian tragedy in the state of Israel outside of you know terrorist incidents or wartime and it is a, a very shocking uh, situation we find ourselves in with the latest information suggesting that the number of people that have lost their lives at uh, Mount meron has gone up to 45. And they are expecting that to rise further because they're struggling with the identification of uh, some of the victims. Uh, So at this point in time, we're awaiting to hear just how many people will have lost their lives in what was clearly a a horrific incident.
0: Can you tell us the significance of the festival itself? I mean, over 100,000 people gathering in one spot post-COVID
1: yes maybe we'll come to the issues surrounding that the number of people that were there on, on this particular occasion but uh, lagba omel is a festival that is um on the 33rd day of the counting of the omel which uh, begins at the passover and it ends at the uh, shavuot festival and it's uh, a festival that came into being uh, around the second uh, century AD and it remembers uh, the life of uh, the Rashbi. Uh, this is a Rabbi Shimon Ben Yochai, uh, who was a, a disciple of uh, Rabbi Akiva, uh, who is a great uh, uh, rabbinical sage. And uh, the Rashbi, as he's known, is the man who uh, established the uh, Jewish mysticism and the idea of Kabbalah, which in particular is very much part of the ultra-orthodox religion and is uh, followed by so many uh, religious Jewish people in different parts of the world.
0: And in that sense, we were, this evening ourselves, originally planning to talk to a couple who would have been married around this time, because it's a period of great festivity.
1: It is. Um, There are certain traditions that have uh, developed over the centuries. And uh, the first, the most famous one here in Israel is the lighting of bonfires. Um, and so people will uh, light a bonfire to uh, celebrate uh, the Rashbi, uh, which in itself is kind of problematic here in many ways in Israel because we're at the change of the seasons. It's very dry and it's also very windy, so it's a day when the emergency services are already on massive standby because of uh, fires that can break out and injuries from fire uh, in normal circumstances. Uh, so there's all these uh, festivities around bonfires. Then those that choose to go to the grave of the Rashbi on Mount Meron uh, take part in dancing. They visit the tomb. Uh, there's a tradition of giving uh, great amounts of uh, wine and other drinks um, in order to be blessed by uh, the rabbis. And that often results in people getting rather merry to say the very least. It's called Chai And it's normally eight. if you give 18 liters, <laughs> which is a lot, Uh, then you are particularly blessed. Um, And so all these people come uh, to Mount Meron as well as celebrating around the country. And there's one other tradition, which is that um, uh, religious Jewish boys very often don't have their first haircut until um, they're three years old and they do it on this day as another sign of celebration. So there's many different strands that come together.
0: Was there also an element of uh, a sense of people being released from lockdown? Uh, because Israel has done reasonably well in terms of vaccination and the process has gone ahead very well.
1: Yes, um, you know, I'm proud to say that Israel has led the world as far as the rate of vaccination goes, and we've opened up our uh, economy and returned to close to a normal way of life in recent weeks. Now, last year when it was the uh, Lagba Omel festival, um, the restrictions were such that they only allowed about 150 people to go to the site, where in previous years there had been up to 200 to 300,000. So only 150 were allowed, but regardless of that, a number of ultra-Orthodox uh, Jewish groups were very angry that um, Corona had been given precedence over their religious um, uh, feelings and they stormed the site last year, which led to 300 ultra-Orthodox Jews being arrested for breaking the coronavirus rules. Now, with the rules having eased greatly, there was a permission, as I understand it, for around 10,000 people to be allowed into the site, uh, even though there were many people concerned that it could prompt another spread of the virus. As it transpires, according to most reports, Uh, We're in a situation of having seen between 90 and 100,000 people there. So around 10 times more people there than uh, the number which had been officially uh, uh, designated. So that was already problematic.
0: Do we have any idea how the tragedy occurred?
1: Yes, according to uh, eyewitnesses, there is a staircase that leads uh, down to one of the main buildings, uh, which has been known as a bottleneck. And um, because so many people were drinking and there was so much uh, alcohol and water and all sorts of things, the staircase, which has been worn very smooth over the many, many centuries of people going to this site, uh, was wet. And it's understand that people slipped and that started the crush because people were so crushed into this bottleneck area that unfortunately, um, people were not able to uh, get out. And uh, David Horovitz, who's, for me, Israel's foremost um, journalist, uh, English language journalist, who, who is the founder of the Times of Israel, he's just published a piece uh, before I spoke to you, and he's titled it Mount Meron, the disaster everyone knew was waiting to happen. And That is really, I think, a sense that everybody saw this. I've also seen one of um, a a very senior rabbi uh, going on national television and being very critical of the ultra-Orthodox leadership for having pushed to increase the numbers of people there and for having encouraged people to go beyond the limit of the numbers that were originally designated. And this has resulted in this uh, tragedy this uh, weekend at what should have been such a great celebration. And it's a symptom, I believe, of the direction in which Israel is going at present.
0: Paul Alster, thank you for joining us on the Leap of Faith
1: tonight. Thank you very much, Michael.
0: I also spoke earlier to Israel's Deputy Ambassador to Ireland, Mrs. Orly Weitzman, Expressing condolences, I asked her what information was available at the present time.
2: Um, so right now, um, there's not. we don't know much uh, about the events themselves. We're still trying to, to figure out what happened, and I'm sure things will that it'll be looked into very deeply in the next few days. It is, however, clear that there has been a very tragic event. But right now, a, Israel and the people in Israel are focused on still identifying the bodies and uh, supporting um, the, the injured and the families of the bereaved in, in the process.
0: And of course, with the Sabbath in place, there will be um, there won't be any funerals or any activity until that's passed.
2: So some of the funerals are happening are happening now before the Sabbath, and the rest probably will happen after. Yes.
0: I understand that many people have been contacting the embassy to offer their condolences in the wake of the tragedy.
2: We know that this is a day of mourning for, for Jews eh, all around the world and we've received eh, many condolences from many um, from many parts of the world, from many people both in Ireland and other places and we appreciate all the um, all these sentiments and messages of condolences and this is a day for us all to get together eh, in mourning and in thinking of, of, of these tragic events.
0: Deputy Ambassador, thank you for joining us on the programme tonight. Thank you. Next this evening, as many of the world's developed countries continue the rollout of the various COVID-19 vaccines, it's estimated that more than 85 of the world's poorer countries could be waiting until 2023 for access to the medication. Earlier, I spoke with Rosamund Bennett, Chief Executive of Christian Aid Ireland, an organisation which is part of the People's Vaccine Alliance, and asked her about her concerns.
3: Um, Our concerns are the fact that... uh, you know, in Ireland, you know, we do wish that the rollout of the vaccines was progressing a little bit more quickly. Um, but and compared to, say, the UK, for example, over half the population have received the first dose. Um, but the reality is the, it's very imbalanced against lower and developing countries. So wealthy countries have, you know, one in four wealthy countries have received a vaccine so far. That number is one in 500 for developing countries. You know, not 0.2% of all COVID jabs have happened in developing countries. If you're in a higher income country, like UK or Ireland, um, you will get vaccinated 25 times faster than if you were in a developing country. So it is just very unfair that in a pandemic that is affecting absolutely everyone, every age, sex, religion, nationality, that somehow getting a vaccine comes down to where you live and how much money your government has.
0: And as an organisation, are you aware what the driver is behind this? Is it economic or is there something maybe a little bit more political or nationalistic about it?
3: Well, there are probably, there are two reasons, really. One is what, you know, the wealthier countries, they put in these um, advance orders um, for the vaccine. Uh, So it comes down to money. It comes down to whether or not your country can actually afford it. Uh, Most, a lot of countries, developing countries, are paying more back in their debt repayments than they are in their healthcare systems, than they put into their healthcare systems. So they don't have that money to actually buy vaccines in the first place. And the second one then is obviously supply and getting access to a vaccine, which is why we are, um, and many people, are supporting this temporary waiver that uh, means that really it it allows other companies in developing countries to be able to develop a vaccine um, without the threat of reprisal from the the larger pharmaceutical companies.
0: Which are, of course, protected by patent, I presume.
3: Um, Yes, they're protected by patent. And, you know, at the moment, the the global system, international system can produce about three to five billion doses um, a year. And the world needs 14 billion doses a year. So this is not just going to get solved overnight. This requires a change in what's happening right now. And the only way to make that change is to free it up to allow a temporary waiver not saying this being long-term, but a temporary waiver, that means that other countries can start producing the vaccine and um, that, that they can get that vaccine out to people. Because as long as, you know, every new case uh, is a risk of COVID mutating. And so the longer we leave it and the more cases there are, the greater the chances there are of mutations and the harder it is to actually kill off this pandemic.
0: What is the role for you know, organizations of faith and people of faith in 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 this story.
3: I think the the role they're playing is actually coming together, and um, uh, it's great to see that that world religious leaders are coming together and actually calling for a people's vaccine and putting pressure on governments uh, locally, internationally to say, you know, we we need to change this. People are dying, and we can change this. It can be changed. If we have this temporary waiver, if we have a vaccine for the people, and that is the only way that we can actually see this beginning to get under control. And I'm very fortunate. I've had my first vaccine already and I was really feeling very blessed to get it. But I also feel um, I feel very uncomfortable knowing that I'm getting it because of where I live when, you know, a lot of my friends and colleagues all over the world um, will not get it this year, will not get it next year may not get it until 2023.
0: You were writing recently, indeed, about uh, some of the information that's coming from your colleagues in other countries, uh, in Kenya in particular.
3: Yes, so colleagues in Kenya, the Kenyan government have said that they will be able to vaccinate 30% of the population. That is it. Um, They will start, they will do the over 50s, they will look at the people working in healthcare, they will look at people working in the tourism industry. But that is as much as they can actually you know, vaccinate. And, you know, that's, and at the moment they've vaccinated probably about less than 1% of the population. So countries are having to make, countries like Kenya are having to make very difficult choices because they can't vaccinate everyone. So they're they're going with who they can vaccinate. You know, that that shouldn't be the case. If that was happening here, you know, we, we want the elderly to be vaccinated first. You know, there are people, there are vulnerable categories that you want to be vaccinated first. But everyone's life is important. Everyone's life is precious. And it is just a terrible position to be in to know that you have to make a decision as to who you can and who you cannot vaccinate. And as I said, many of the countries are paying more in their debt repayment than they are in their health care. So their health care systems are already very fragile to begin with. They really cannot cope with the pandemic. They cannot cope with people getting sick. So um, they have very few intensive care units, very few ventilators. Um, so it's not that, that if anything does happen and whenever it, or whenever the situation gets worse, they have no way of coping with that either.
0: There is an irony that even back as far as last October, South Africa and India, which we know, of course, now is experiencing such a crisis, were, were putting a proposal to the World Trade Organization. What happened to that?
3: So India and South Africa approached last October. They approached um, and asked for this temporary waiver and um, there were, you know, it was backed by about 100 countries and about 170 world leaders and Nobel Prize winners and former world leaders and Nobel Prize winners. And it was effectively blocked. It was blocked by the UK, by US, by EU. And um, there are all sorts of reasons of why this has been blocked. They have said that um, it really will stifle innovation And that in a pandemic, you know, you need to be able to spend a lot of money in research and development in order to cope with changing variants and mutations. Um, But, well, I'm not an expert, but I would say it's 1% innovation and 99% investment. You know, a lot happened this year in getting those vaccines made and out. Um, The reality is we're putting, you know, we're putting patents before people and you know, if we know that there's three to five billion can be made a year and we need 14 billion, then the pharmaceutical companies and the governments who have basically blocked this waiver, they need to take a back seat and they need to look at this. How can they change the situation? This is a temporary waiver. This is not about making it permanent going forward. It's a temporary waiver in the middle of a pandemic. And we have seen how so many things have changed in the last year. We've made exceptions for this rule, exceptions for that rule, because we've understood the seriousness of the situation.
0: And Rosamond, I believe today the World Trade Organisation have another meeting in relation to vaccines.
3: So today uh, the the World Trade Organisation is going back to the they have a TRIPS uh, meeting, which uh, TRIPS stands for Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights. And they're going back to see if a decision can be made today. And I really, really, you know, I'm hoping and praying along with many of the other religious leaders that, uh, that a positive decision will be made today. A decision that puts people before patents, basically.
0: Rosamund Bennett, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith.
3: Thank you, Michael.
0: Earlier this week, we learnt of the death of Rory Young, a Zambian-born Irish citizen, killed on an anti-poaching patrol in the West African country of Burkina Faso, along with two Spanish journalists, who were there also. Burkina Faso's government officials confirmed their deaths on Tuesday. A local soldier was also abducted, but his status is unknown. Joining me from Burkina Faso is His Excellency Archbishop Michael Crotty, Apostolic Nuncio to Burkina Faso and Niger, Archbishop, you're welcome. We're talking to you under rather sad circumstances. What can you tell us?
4: Well, thank you, Michael, for having me on this evening. Um, First of all, I would like to um, express my deepest sympathies and condolences to the families and friends and the colleagues of uh, two Spanish journalists and uh, also to the family of uh, Rory Young, who were killed so tragically um, in Burkina Faso uh, earlier this week.
0: And we know that they were visiting a forested area as part of uh, the conservation work that they were doing. Rory would have said many times before in interviews that this very very often poaching is related to elements of poverty in in a country. What can you tell us of the country that you're in at the moment?
4: Well, I'm newly arrived in the country. I just got here um, last September, so I'm still learning and getting to know the country. Burkina Faso has a lot of poverty um, and uh, there are a lot of socioeconomic problems. And unfortunately, these have contributed to the uptake in violence, uh, some of it terrorist violence, um, organized bandit groups, particularly in the border regions of, of the country. And in many of those border regions, you have uh, forested areas um, where there is a lot of um poaching going on and uh, and you have um groups uh, who are basically keeping the government out of those areas and unfortunately that was an area which uh, rory was traveling into um on uh, last monday morning uh, when this tragic attack happened by basically uh probably um a group that was controlling that area um, unfortunately, we don't have that much details yet about the exact identity of the people involved. But um, um, insofar as that they have support in those areas, it's because of uh, extreme poverty. And, um, you know, poaching is a livelihood for, for many ordinary people. And uh, so, so it's a very complex uh, problem to address and obviously, uh, Rory Young uh, was committed to addressing that uh, problem.
0: Can you expand, if you would, for you as an, an Irishman working with the diplomatic side of the Vatican, what is your work in Africa?
4: Well, uh, first and foremost, uh, as a papal nuncio, my role is to represent the Holy Father. I'm a papal representative, so that is my primary purpose. I so it's, it ha- it's a diplomatic role. Uh, it's also a role uh, engaging with the local church. Um, so I have a representational role. So in these past months, uh, one of the great joys and opportunities I've had is starting to go around and visit different parts of the country, different parishes, and uh, to be welcomed basically on behalf of the Holy Father. So I've often... So, to people, thank you for your very, very warm welcome. I'm coming here as your the papal representative, and you have given me a welcome as if it was the Holy Father himself. So that is a, a great uh, joy for me to to uh, bring the presence of the Holy Father to uh, this part uh, of of Africa. And indeed, uh, for many Irish people, perhaps they don't know too much about uh, Burkina Faso. They don't know perhaps where where it is on the map, but It is uh, a much bigger country than many people would would imagine. Uh, The population of Burkina Faso is about uh, over 20 million, maybe 22 million people. Um, The uh, Christian population is about uh, 25 um, percent. It's majority Muslim country. But uh, even though you have a small Christian minority who are overwhelmingly um, Catholic because of the French uh, colonial um, background here. Um, it's a very vibrant uh, community, and uh, even in, in these past few months, uh, uh, we've had wonderful uh, celebrations um, on this uh, Easter Pass on the Holy Saturday for the Easter Vigil. I uh, celebrated uh, the Easter Vigil ceremony in one of the parishes here in in Ouagadougou, and it was a wonderful, warm celebration. Uh, I uh, baptized uh, fifty adults as uh, Catholics, and uh, also uh, had confirmed sixty on the same occasion. So it was quite a long night, uh, but it was a wonderful and beautiful celebration. And uh, so, for me, that's one of the great joys of the of the work of of literally um, bringing the presence of the Holy Father to uh, communities. Uh, on the ground here in, in Africa, and uh, I've been doing this in different countries and different parts of the world. Uh, uh, I started uh, my diplomatic career in Kenya in 2001, and I was there for three years, obviously as a secretary of the nunciture. So this is my first posting as, as papal nuncio.
0: For a man born in Mitchellstown in County Cork, uh, to where you are now, uh, how different mm-hmm. Has that journey been the new expected?
4: I'm used to this now after after 20 years. I've been moving around from place to place, uh, from Kenya to Canada, from Canada to Iraq and Jordan, then back uh, to Rome and then uh, to Spain. I was uh, three years in Spain before my appointment as nuncio. So I have been... uh, used to that. Um, And uh, I I look forward to the challenge of going to uh, a new place and a new experience. And uh, so this is my second posting in Africa. My first posting was in in Kenya, English speaking, uh, where you had a large presence of Irish missionaries uh, to go to Burkina Faso, which is the other side of Africa, uh, Francophone Africa. And where the Irish presence is minimal to non-existent. um, I think in West Africa, you will find an Irish presence in places like Ghana and uh, and Nigeria, but in Burkina Faso, it's primarily uh, French. So it's been a new experience. Uh, Obviously, um, it's, it's... presents its challenges, but uh, that's, that's what makes it interesting too. So uh, in these last few months I've had to uh, brush up on my French. Little did I realize then that uh, studying f- French in uh, the CBS and Midchistan that I would one day it would, would come of use to me. so so I, 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 I quite enjoyed um, it, the experience of going to someplace new.
0: Archbishop, we know that religious leaders around the world and the Vatican are expressing a concern about the availability of vaccines to the developing world. Is this something that will be on your agenda as you observe what's happening in Africa?
4: Well, um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a big uh, concern. I, I think uh, Pope Francis has been uh, very quick um, to identify this uh, as a problem. I mean, he, he was raising this issue uh, ever before the, the vaccines were were uh, finalized um, and the concern about um, helping the poorest of the, of the poorest countries and uh, so at the moment, for example in uh, Burkina Faso there, there are no vaccines have yet arrived in the country although there are plans for them to start coming uh, soon uh, not quite sure when but they, they're coming. And so this is uh, this is a, a, a concern, a, a, a sort of a vaccine uh, inequality um, that's throughout the world. But you know, I think it's an issue that a lot of people are, are, are very clear about, uh, concerned about, and uh, I, we hope that uh, the people who are in responsible positions can make the appropriate decisions to address these concerns.
0: Archbishop Michael Grotty, thank you for joining us on the Leap of Faith tonight. Thank you very much. And that's our Leap of Faith. Our producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. Our broadcast coordinator is Jarlath Holland. From them and me, Michael Cummins, good night.